please either call the church directly, 5280-527, or you can reach me through the Ordinary Life website. Um, we'd like to know what's going on with you and, and how you are doing. So um, on a personal note, I thought I would say this. Um, you all have heard me, some of you for decades, refer to Dr. Sherry Beeman, the woman to whom I married as my beautiful bride. And uh, I'll make this really short. Sherry had inherited a condition called familial essential tremors, which uh, present a little bit like Parkinson's. You've seen them, you know, her hands tremble. And uh, she tried all sorts of therapies and remedies to deal with this over the years and nothing really worked. This last Friday, she underwent brain surgery called deep brain stimulation surgery where they drill four holes in the head and go in and implant implants, um, which will be attached to a device later. Anyway, um, she's fine. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> it was a long ordeal and uh, stressful, and uh, but she is doing really well. Yeah. She was up and visiting with my daughter when uh, we left and back home. Yeah, that's amazing to me. It is amazing. Well, a little, little shout out of love to Sherry. And, <laughs> and, and uh, the um, surgeon who did this, Dr. Fonoy, has been very, very helpful and very kind. And she was awake during the surgery. Yeah, that blows my mind. So that he could give her commands yeah. about touching her nose with her fingers, yeah. raising her legs and doing things while they're operating on her brain. Yeah. Uh, give me, give me. It's fascinating. I'm so relieved. I am so relieved. so relieved also. So tell people about our podcast. Yeah. Um, so Bill and I have begun recording a podcast weekly that we're calling In Between, in part because it's in between Bill and me, in between Sundays. And I've, I've said this on the podcast, but the word in between in Greek is metaxis. And the way that the metaxis is described is that love happens in between oneself and the other, in between the human and divine, in between humans and everything else. So that's why we call it that. And it can be found on our website or on Apple Podcasts, wherever you download your podcast. But the easiest way to get to it for all of us is direct from the website. So this morning I read about the fact that Jim Hollis, whom we mention from time to time, yep. and a good tool for your own spiritual practice is Jim Hollis's book, Living an Examined Life. Yeah, it's a great book. It's a great book, and you can read a chapter in 10 minutes and make it one a day for 21 days and then repeat it. And he, no, then you're just transformed. 21 days to transformation. Oh, sure. <laughs> um he has a uh, book and an audio program called In Between. I didn't explore the whole thing, but it's, it, it talks about the in-between things about life. Oh, that's I guess I haven't explored it, but I will. But the in-between also refers to the fact that we're in between a theological, spiritual, religious construction that simply no longer works. Right. And in the process of trying to create something that's uh, more viable. So I hope your spiritual practice is uh, doing well, helping you during this time of coronavirus. And uh, I want to thank the people here behind the scenes who make this possible. Olivia, John Watson, Tim Leatherwood, William Budge is not here today. And if people want to donate money, I notice you are going to pass the offering plate. I am going to pass the offering plate. Um, we usually pass the offering plate in class, as you guys know, and um, are able to collect funds to contribute to nonprofits serving the underserved, the um, those who without resources or um, organizations that are doing great jobs of taking care of those who live on the edges. And one of the ways that you can contribute right now is online. You can go to the Ordinary Life website and press donate and it'll guide you through the process. Once you get to the donation page, if you just put in the memo Ordinary Life General Funds, then it'll go straight to the Ordinary Life um, account and by the end of the year we will distribute those funds so thank you so much for your generosity and for any of you also who participated in our recent art auction thank you for your contribution passing <laughs> okay yeah. 
So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome. I'm so glad you're here and watching this. We're going to be talking today about using anger as a spiritual tool. And uh, I need to correct the slide because interbeing is misspelled. It is misspelled. You put a hyphen in a word that is one Aut word. Autocorrect, put a hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> that I will, I will try to remember to do that. We're using how Jesus and Buddha can guide us through the pandemic. And uh, next Sunday, we will begin um, actually going through the Eightfold Path uh, Sunday by Sunday. Mm -hmm. And next Sunday's class is called um, Looking into the Future by Stepping into the Present. And it'll be the first step on the, the Eightfold Path, which I'm going to try to lay a little bit of a groundwork for today. And um, boy, how apt is this? Mm -hmm. I don't think we knew when we planned this that the circumstances in our country would be what they are today yeah. about anger. Yeah. So a bit of entanglement there, I think, just maybe arriving at this place to speak about this, we are also given a set of circumstances through which we can use Buddha and Jesus as a guide. So when we got home from the hospital yesterday and had kind of a chance to settle in, I sat down and turned on the TV and was greeted by all these images of rage that are currently taking place in Atlanta. Yeah, another black man was shot and, in Atlanta. And I saw that, that video. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't have any pictures of that, but I was thinking about uh, when we came up with this, about some of the images of anger that I have seen, and you have too. This picture that came from the Charlottesville riot uh, a couple of years ago now, mm -hmm. that young man's face certainly stands out to me as a face of Anger. In which a woman was killed by um, being run over by a car. By one a of woman the, was killed in that being run over. This by. is a rally of white supremacists. We need to be white clear supremacy. about that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, if you pay any attention to religious news over the years, here's just one of the shots from the Westboro Baptist Church protests somewhere around. These people used to go and protest military funerals. Um, the, the man who was the founder, pastor of this small, crazy group of people in Kansas, I think. I can't remember. I think so. Yeah. Uh, he died. Oh. Uh, and his church just kind of went away. And one of his daughters defected and is now going around the country talking about how what they did was so wrong. It's a whole nother story. There's a documentary about her about that. Hmm. When um, really tragic things happened in Miramar, Mm -hmm. uh, I got a call from somebody one day and said, what is this with the Buddhist that they're doing all this uh, ethnic cleansing in Miramar? And I think that we have had a tendency to um, idealize Buddhists. Mm -hmm. They are not people of all light and happiness like the Dalai Lama. So again, we are using Jesus and Buddha, the teachings of Jesus and Buddha to guide us through this pandemic. And what I want to do at the beginning today, and Holly's going to talk a lot about anger, I want to give a kind of a brief religious 101 mm -hmm. about how, um, how what we know about Buddhism uh, came to be and how it deals with suffering. And um, I want to do the same thing with a, a Judeo-Christian understanding to help us understand how is it that um, we human beings who start out as these sweet, lovable, cuddable, precious beings can turn into creatures who can hate yeah. and kill. Yeah and do all sorts of things. So um, I, I'm gonna talk about Buddhism first and then I'm gonna talk about what I consider the second most successful piece of bad theology ever constructed. You will recall that last week I said that Buddha had uh, experiences that led him to create what we know as the five remembrances. Those remembrances are, I'm sure to become old, I cannot avoid aging, I am sure to become ill. I cannot avoid illness. 
I am sure to die. I cannot avoid death. I must be separated and parted from all that is near and beloved to me. And I am the owner of my actions. Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these I shall become the heir. And when we get to the first step in Buddhism, you're going to see how this plays out as a concept known as karma, which is uh, a very misunderstood concept in, um, in Buddhism. I am not... Uh, practicing Buddhist. I know a lot about Buddhism. Uh, I have friends who are very devout Buddhist practitioners, and I've read fairly extensively about Buddhism, and I can tell you that there are as many myths and varieties and stories about the origin of Buddhism and the history of Buddha himself, the first Buddha um, that um, you know, 500 years B.C., although he taught for 50 years and a lot of his writings were actually written down, uh, his teachings were actually written down, um, you have about as many different stories of his birth story as you do about Jesus. Right. Um, he was raised Siddhartha Gautama as a prince. His father had been told that he would either inherit the kingdom from his father and be a great ruler Several of the seers that they hired to give a future broad forecast of Buddha said that. And one said that he would grow up to be a great spiritual teacher. And his father didn't want that, so he sheltered him in the palace, gave him everything to let him have a very self-indulgent life. And then one day, Buddha, at age 29, left the palace and went either on one chariot ride or four successive chariot rides, depends on the story. Mm -hmm. And what he saw on that ride, off in the distance behind the chariot, you can see that he sees a very old person. In front of the chariot, he sees a very sick person. On the ground, he sees a corpse, actually a skeleton. And then in the left-hand side of the picture, he sees a renunciate, uh, someone who is um, trying to find uh, a way out of all this suffering. So Buddha learns, mm -hmm. uh, Siddhartha learns that uh, people grow old, they get sick, and they die. But in seeing the renunciate, um, he has a glimmer of hope. Uh, he left the palace. He went to great lengths seeking to find a solution to suffering. There are stories told about him that he, for some time, lived on a leaf a day or a grain of rice a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, take those with a uh, grain of sand. Or um, rice. He was passed out near a river one day or bathing in a river, and some woman came to him and gave him a bowl of pudding, mm -hmm. which revived him. And in that moment, he decided there has to be another way. Right. The The excesses of the palace didn't do it the deprivations of being a renunciate didn't do it so he came up with this other thing which is known as the middle way the middle path mm -hmm. and um the story goes that he went and sat under a bodhi tree you can look this up on the wikipedia and see a sapling which is now an old tree from the original bodhi tree they claim bodhi is a fig tree Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of the malas that people wear today are made out of Bodhi seeds. This one is not, but um, they do that. So out of his experience, oh, Buddha decided he would sit under that tree. He sat under that tree for seven weeks. Yeah. Now this is kind of parallel to... Seven days. Seven days <laughs> or Jesus' experience in the wilderness mm -hmm. is 40 mm -hmm. days. Mm-hmm. And these numbers appear in all these religious stories. And what he came up with in finding enlightenment was what are known in Buddhism as the Four Noble Truths. And I think as part of religious literacy, everybody ought to know these. Just like everybody ought to know what are the five pillars of Islam and what are the four gospels in the Christian story? What are the Ten Commandments in the, in the Jewish tradition? The four noble truths are there's suffering, 
which he talked about. There's a reason for suffering. There can be an end of suffering, and there is a path to follow to end the suffering. So suffering is inherent in the human experience, mm -hmm. and um, there's a reason that we suffer, which we're going to be talking about more next week. We suffer because of what Buddha called craving, aversion, and attachment. We want things that we don't have, which we think will make us happy when we get them, like a Tesla. Mm -hmm. Or a jet. A what? A jet, an airplane. A jet. <laughs> oh, who would want one of those? <laughs> Never thought of that. We have things that we don't want to just get rid of, then we'll be happy, and that could include a spouse or an illness or something like Discomfort that. Discomfort or... Yeah. Difficulty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have attachments, which are inevitable. But what Buddha meant by that was not to have attachments, but to realize that we and everything that we hold to are always changing. Right. One of the misnomers, I think, of the, of the attachments is um, that the opposite then is detached. And, you know, we become attached to our kids. That's actually healthy and good and right to have a healthy attachment to our kids. Mm -hmm. And that's not the kind of attachment that Buddha's talking about. What he's talking about is a fixed idea about outcome. Right. Yeah. And what you learn about life is that everything arises and passes away. Right. I've heard you talk about yin and yang in this sense. You can't, you can't have light without dark. Right. And all goes together. So... Um, this is a brief one-on-one mm -hmm. on just a Buddhist part. Okay, yeah. Think that covers it? I think that you have done 0.01, yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> But we're going to get all the way through by the end of these eight weeks, so, yeah. I want to talk about Judeo-Christian uh, theology for just a little bit about this. Um, why, why do we suffer according to the Judeo-Christian tradition? Um, I have said many times that theology matters. Bad theology kills people. Think of 9-11. Think of abortion clinics being blown up. Think of the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, think of what has been done to members of the LBGTQ plus community. Think of the Crusades. Think of, well, we could sit here the rest of the day talking about that. So there are two doctrines that have been put forth by the church that I say constitute the worst theology ever written. Uh, one is called the substitutionary atonement doctrine. And uh, this doctrine says, in short, that Jesus died for your sins to keep God from throwing you into hell for the rest of your life. And um, that's not true. Jesus was executed because he was an insurrectionist. He was executed by the Roman government because he was a, a troublemaker. Uh, I've gone into the wrongness, the gone wrongness of this doctrine a number of times in ordinary life, so I'm not going to do it again today. The other doctrine that has gone wrong has been the doctrine of original sin. Did you know that the word doctrine means a healing teaching? Hmm. I didn't until I read your notes on it. It's and not, I, had, I just had never even... It has the same root word yeah. as the word doctor. Doctor. To right. heal, yeah. And yet most of the doctrines <laughs> yeah. in the church yeah. have been used to shun people, to make people feel guilty, to keep people in an immature stance, mm -hmm. to get obedience out of people. Uh, so... Um, if I can do something to contribute to correct that. I love also, um, it's, it's not necessarily the same root, but the exact same spelling, sin or sin in Spanish, means without. Right. So when we, are, when we sin, we're actually without, without belonging, maybe, or without connection. I love this sort of stuff, yeah. and this is not in our notes, no. but sincere. Mm -hmm. The word sincere came about to describe a sculpture because if the sculpture was whole and intact it was said to be sincere mm -hmm. meaning without wax mm -hmm. because if it was flawed mm -hmm. 
they would cover up the flaw with a little bit of wax and make it look perfect. That's so, so, I mean, those kinds of things, getting to the root of the root, really, is kind of, sort of, yeah, thing. yeah. You know, the doctrine of original sin may sound good to some people because if I do the right things to avoid the inevitable outcome of original sin, I'm in the good group and other people are not in the good group. And I think I could show, well, I know I could, that anytime somebody says everybody's in, that is really upsetting to a number of people, mm -hmm. particularly in religious groups. I remember when Rob Bell wrote his book called Love Wins, in which he said nobody went to hell. He got fired. Yeah. Because people don't like that. Yeah. I mean, people. Some people don't don't like that. Um, so, very good people who embrace a version of the. Um, a doctrine of original sin, end up calling other people sinners, infidels, heretics, whatever, to the point that sometimes they decide that um, we have to kill them. Who's in and who's out is a, a very big thing. So I want to offer another way to think about what's called original sin because I think it will give us a better framework for thinking about where anger comes from in the human condition. Uh, and I want you to know that the work that I'm, the words that I'm sharing with you about this are mine, but they're based on work done by a philosopher, anthropologist who died a couple of years ago, Rene Girard, and uh, a Catholic theologian by the name of James Allison. And there are five key concepts that I use in my own thinking to understand how it is that we human beings so easily fall off the path. The first is has to do with the fact that we human beings learn by imitation. Hmm. We copy what the bigger folks around us do because we think this is the way to ingratiate ourselves or whatever. I had the opportunity to babysit my granddaughter, Rachel, when she was just learning to walk. We had been on vacation. Uh, every, the, the women had decided to go to a spa. The guy's gone fishing or something. So I stayed at this little cabin to take care of Rachel. And she um, was just learning to get around on her own without holding on to things. And somehow she managed to grab the remote of the TV, mm -hmm. and she walked around the house just pointing it up like this, yeah, because that's what she that's had seen she her parents seen. do. Yeah. And if you did that, then you're going to get a magical outcome. The 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 behavior of imitation is mammalian too. Like the study of mammals uh, over time shows that as as mammals evolved into humans, that imitation was the first thing that indicated a higher level of consciousness. Imitation, play, I, I, ritual. I, I, yeah. I heard this uh, cultural anthropologist describe how that evolutionary process worked to keep people alive uh, in, in small groups. Mm -hmm. uh, people would eat together. Mm -hmm. And the gag reflex developed out of that experience where if somebody put something bad in their mouth, they'd go, eh, like mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. and it would communicate to the people around them. Don't eat it. Don't eat this. Or to the monkeys around them or to the baby tigers or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we, we learn by, by imitation. We learn what neighborhood to like. We learn what people to like. We learn what cars to drive and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. we imitate. Mm -hmm. You get that because um, we get bound to these imitation habits and think that they're truth. That's right. Okay. And the second thing that uh, comes up for us is rivalry. What you desire, I desire. So if you want that cookie, you want that iPhone, you want that girlfriend, uh, <laughs> You want that house in that neighborhood, so do I. And when we both compete for the same objects, we become rivals. That's the second thing. The third in this original sin revised category is anxiety. Because rivalry can easily lead to violence. Now, since we all grow up in an environment called the family, 
This violence is usually directed not toward an enemy, but toward somebody close, mm -hmm. somebody uh, with whom we have been a companion. I may elaborate on this later today, but I remember that when I got involved in actual clinical training, that one of the things that just stunned me more than anything else, one of the two or three things, was the amount and degree of violence that exists in the American family. It's just staggering. And I was thinking about maybe next Sunday even elaborating on this because during the virus shutdown, mm -hmm. domestic violence has Shut gone up, up just astronomically. Yeah, I, when I first became a counselor in schools, I had the same feeling of just how many kids I knew who had been abused. Just astronomical. It is. Yeah. And it's not just, uh, I mean, physical abuse is horrible, mm -hmm. but there's Emotional. verbal abuse, there's neglect, there's withholding of love, attention, mm -hmm. affection, appreciation, which can be just, just as abusive. Yeah. Uh, and what are we? We're good imitators. Yes. So that if somebody is abused in a family, they are likely to pass that abuse right. on until they can gain some control of it. Um, the fourth thing that happens in this original sin revisited is scapegoating. Because when anxiety, uh, that anxiety reaches a certain level, it has to find an outlet. And that's where you have social disintegration, where neighbor turns upon neighbor. Um, there is a less destructive visibly way of dealing with scapegoating and that's to label a whole group of people as being bad or evil or unwanted or needing to be shunned or in the extreme even needing to be exterminated. Mm -hmm. um, and crazy as it sounds, this produces a kind of unity among the people who are doing the hating. Among the oppressor. Yeah. 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 And, and I the oppressed as well. There's also, I think, this kind of uh, something you talked about that is common between Buddha and Jesus is that they both had to feel what it was like to not belong to their right. group. So what behaviors like that, what destructive group behaviors create is a sense of belonging that becomes harder and harder and harder to question the more and more and more you establish belonging. Right. So we have to kind of learn how to unbelong, I think. So scapegoating, if it works, yeah. and it frequently does for the oppressor, mm -hmm. it leads to ritualization. And there you have sin 101 revisited. Um, I don't think there's a sphere of life that is not touched by this paradigm. Um, no religious institution, no political party, no individual. Not me, not Holly, nobody. We're all touched by this in some way. Now, let's go back and just briefly look at the story, one of the stories of creation in the Hebrew scripture and use this paradigm instead of the one that we're usually given. One we're usually given is that Adam and Eve were created in the garden, it was perfect, everybody was really happy and then uh, the snake tempted Eve, she gave the fruit to Adam. God got really, really angry, kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, and it's just been going downhill ever since. And the woman got blamed. The woman got blamed. Mm -hmm. That right there is the, um, the, the insertion of patriarchal uh, distortion from the very beginning. Absolutely. It's one of the three things that affects this country. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to Adam and Eve. Now this is a parable. This is a metaphor, okay? So they, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and they were to imitate God, all right? Imitation. But that's not enough for them. So they become God's rivals and they quickly become rivals blaming each other. Well, the snake made me do it, you know, all that sort of stuff. They have children, their children imitate and play out the destructive roles of the parents and their rivalry led to murder. Cain, uh, I first heard this from uh, James Finley, do you know lo how long Cain hated his brother? Hmm. 
-mm. as long as he was able. I wonder if anyone can see my eyes rolling, but that was funny. <laughs> okay. No, it's not funny. <laughs> oh, gosh. So Cain goes off and builds a city. And that suggests that cities themselves are built on the dirty work of rivalry-driven murders. And it's so disgusting that, according to the story, God himself, herself, is so overwhelmed by the violence of civilization that God wants to wash it all the way, leads to the story of the flood. And on and on it goes until the story ends in these people made the image of God making slaves. And here, I reduce my brother or sister who is made in the image of God into a tool who is made in the image of my own desire. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the proper understanding of original sin, that it is a crisis of identity that occurs every time we reject our true identity and distort the identity of any other human being. People who feel that their identity is rejected get angry. We all do. We all want to be seen for who we are. People who feel that their security is threatened by such people become angry. Mm -hmm. And we become slaveholders who can dehumanize slaves who are themselves put into such a bind that it's hard for them ever to get out. Right. Now, I wanted to do those two pieces because um, I think it may lay a groundwork for understanding why it is that we have these impulses of craving aversion, uh, anxiety, scapegoating, all that sort of stuff that finds itself expressed in anger right. in our culture. Well, just really quickly, you know, a sort of revisionist theology idea about the serpent is that in archaically speaking, the serpent was actually a symbol of wisdom and a symbol of birth, death, rebirth cycles, right? But because of patriarchy and religion, we get the story that we got because of the dominator model. We sort of got, you know, so there's, there's many ways to look at symbols that perhaps also Eve was the, the, the bearer of wisdom but it became competitive, as you say, and, 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 and ugh, excuse me, <laughs> a rival as opposed to And And this is also, the, this is similar, the healing serpent is also uh, found in some places in the Hebrew scripture and certainly in Greek mythology. And uh, it's why on the doctor's staff, there are right. snakes that right. are the Ouroboros, which I yeah. love so much, which yeah. is the snake eating its tail. Anyhow, so there are other symbols that theology, that we can look at to understand theology differently, but this is the one that's been passed down. And, you know, as you say, anytime we feel dehumanized, anytime we abuse our power, anger is close by. So if the, both the dehumanized and the dehumanizer are both experiencing anger. And what I want to distinguish between is reactive anger and creative anger. I think reactive anger comes from a place of powerlessness or from a sense of abundant power that when it gets challenged or rivaled, it becomes violent. Reactive anger gets stuck in fight mode, um, acts from the primitive, primitive part of our lizard brain that seeks to defend or harm or even kill. Creative anger, I think, is fueled by a sense that an injustice has been done and needs to be righted. Creative anger allows for a pause between the stimulus and response, and it looks for a way to right the wrongs or to heal the harm done. I think it's as this, we both love that interview with Ruby Sales and the work that she's done in the world, it begins with the question, where does it hurt, right? Um, in other words, creative anger is fueled by the, the phenomenon of human reflection, our ability to notice and to get curious about it. I also want to talk about the relationship between suffering and anger. We talked about suffering and grief last week, and right now we're seeing what collective grief looks like in our country and how collective grief that also has anger in it can change systems. So as we know, suffering is an inevitable fact of life. That book, um, The Road Less Traveled, begins with life is hard, get over it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, simplistic, but he goes on to say there's a path to, to understanding how we, we get through suffering. 
Some say the act of being born is our original suffering, going from a unified, undifferentiated state to a differentiated state, that that is our first understanding of suffering. So when we say stay in suffering, which I don't mean to imply that we should be impatient with it, but when we are consumed by suffering, we can dwell there and then it becomes one of two things. It can become anger turned inward, which manifests as depression and self-harm, or it becomes anger turned outward, which manifests as violence through speech, action, and denial, or inaction even, as a kind of violence, I think. When suffering is acknowledged and worked with, intended to, this is where it has the power to become creative. This is where I think growth happens. When I say I think white Americans need to lean into our suffering and grief around systemic racism, I mean that if it has the potential to make us angry enough in a creative way, then we too become partners or collaborators in working for a better world. So I think of this in two contexts. On the cosmic scale, chaos has to exist in order for creativity to ensue. This planet came from and has evolved from cycling periods of chaos and creativity. And often we think of anger, and anger feels very chaotic. I know for me that was the experience I gained about anger, was that anger is chaotic and, and scary or impulsive. And I, I want to yeah. ask you, do you think that, that um, cancer mm -hmm. is a um, one way of understanding this chaos. Cancer is something out of control in the human body that... Right. I want to be careful because for sure, I don't want to say if you've had cancer, it's your fault for not no, transforming your anger. But, but when we have dis-ease, it is usually because something in our body can't transform into ease. Right? And, and sometimes it's an external, like a biological factor or a social factor that has caused disease. But holistic medicine also has this idea that, um, that dis-ease is a place that gets stuck in the body and then begins to collect more energy. Again, I want to be real careful and not try to say that it's one's fault if they become ill. But there is um, an external and internal factor to everything. It's just is what it is. Right. It's, and, and it's both and. It's both external and internal. Right. Okay. Um, and it's hard to transform this stuff. Um, so the second context I think about is when we think about a naturally occurring forest fire. They, when they happen, they usually need to happen. They remove low-growing underbrush. They clean the forest floor of debris, open it up to more sunlight, and nourish the soil. So the soil is enriched by the fire. When trees don't have to compete for the nutrients, they're able to grow stronger and healthier. And certain plants and animals evolved to depend on these periodic wildflowers. So take, for example, the endangered Carner blue butterfly and its caterpillar, which feeds on wild lupine, which requires periodic fire to be able to thrive. So there's a cyclical element to fire, chaos, destruction that brings about more creativity, life, and I want to say flourishing. A fire is sometimes necessary for an ecosystem to survive. I'm thinking right now socially that we need the fire. As you know, James Baldwin's title, The Fire Next Time, maybe we need the fire this time. And anger is associated with the element of fire and the alchemical stage of calc I'm going to mispronounce this, calcinatio. If seen through the lens of the forest fire metaphor, it can be transformative. We also know what happens when a wildfire ravages an area and isn't controlled and isn't able to be sort of subdued, if you will. The repair eventually happens, but the process is a lot longer and slower and happens over time. Similarly, internally, when we're consumed by fire, it represents being burned up or consumed by the fires of unmet desires blocked instincts, and passion and rage, in effect, creating one's own personal hell. And we, you've talked about this so much in this class, that hell is almost like an internal state, a, a state that is created by our, um, by our inability to act in compassion and love. It's not a place that we go. You can add more to that if you want to. Well, I, I, 
if you don't mind, I want to yeah. stick a story in. Yeah, please. Um, this is one of my favorite Zen teaching stories about the, um, what do you call the, the, the warrior? Um, I can't think of the right name now. Uh, mercenary person who goes to the Zen monk and says to the monk who's sitting in meditation, monk, I want you to teach me about heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. And the monk looks up at him and says, I couldn't teach you anything. You're dirty, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're clumsy. I couldn't teach you anything. Mm -hmm. And with that, the soldier takes his sword Samurai. Out. Samurai <laughs> takes his sword out. He's about to kill the monk, and the monk looks up and says, that's hell. That's hell. When we're gripped by those, those feelings of rage, passion, powerlessness, right. or abundant power, we're in hell. The samurai goes, has this moment of awareness mm -hmm. in which he realizes that the monk's not afraid to die, mm -hmm. that he could have killed him, but he finds a relief in the fact that the monk was willing to teach him. And he, oh, and the monk says, and that's heaven. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love that. Story. Yeah. So in all alchemical processes and in, in doing alchemy, every single process begins with fire. And the fire turns something into such fine dust that then becomes something else. And pro my professor Brian Swim says, if you leave volcanic ash alone long enough, it becomes human. So spiritual growth is not so much about getting rid of the fire of anger as it is to see it as a signal for transformation, to learn to trust ourselves with deep, heavy, and intense emotions. And as anger transforms, it purifies and moves us into action. And I think our friend Bill might say that spiritual practice helps us to learn to trust it, helps us learn to trust anger without pushing it away, to sit with the big emotions. So if we look at the recent events of a murder that catalyzed national and worldwide protests, the destructive anger that caused the killing of George Floyd, for a man to hold his knee on a neck for nine minutes is a brutal act, of, I think, of untransformed anger and suffering. This anger spurned by the event is called for, so the protests that have been spurned by that event, I think is cre of as creative anger. Anger that is calling for change. Anger that is saying enough is enough. And I think that anger is motivated by a fierce kind of love, a fierce love of, of, of a people, a fierce love of justice and a fierce love of really wanting something to change, of the fire to create something new. So people moving through the streets and working behind the scenes represent, I think, that movement of the wildfire. And so far, I just want to mention a couple of the changes that protests have informed. Number one, the top 10 books on the New York Times nonfiction list right now are by black authors or about anti-racism. Many of them are currently sold out in print. You can download many of them still. But as a kid who grew up in a really homogenous community where most people looked like me, books were often my only window into seeing other worlds and other lives. Number two, several states have begun to reform police departments, namely redistributing funding, eliminating use of chokeholds and other deadly maneuvers, appropriate I think, limiting or abolishing police presence in schools, Number three, Confederate statues or slave trader statues as far away as England have been toppled or removed, or I'm just gonna say kind of brilliantly graffitied. <laughs> I, I've sort of enjoyed that act of, of revolt. <laughs> um, and there's a whole conversation to be had about that, but when we are re correcting history, we can't give praise to those who sought to subject other people. I grew up in a culture in yeah. Tennessee we all are. where yeah. um, kids wore Confederate caps, mm -hmm. uh, Confederate jackets mm -hmm. uh, were common, mm -hmm. the uh, Confederate flags were at football games right. and in parades, and the shout was heard um, on a regular basis. The South shall rise again. Right. I, went, I went to a high school here in Houston who when I started there the mascot was Johnny Rebel, and the Confederate flag was the, was the symbol. That wow. has since changed. That was in the 90s. 
So <laughs> here we are. So the Confederate flag onto this, number four, as a secondary symbol to many military branches has been abolished. Number five, black-led organizations have received millions of dollars nationwide. And number six, companies have been forced to take a stand. Remembering that this country is, our religion is kind of consumerism. That the cons it's not, that, oh, it is yeah. consumerism. <laughs> that, that is a religion. Right, exactly. So that the consumer, the con those that we consume from have taken a stand or even have been forced to take a stand is relevant, right? So the religion of our country is saying, okay, we hear you. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that we can say, oh, that's enough. This, but this is an example of how anger can fuel change. And some of these changes I am wary of because I, number one, am wary of the genuineness of the positions, whether they're motivated by a sincere uncovering and effort to restore, or whether they're motivated by social pressures. But momentum is being gained. And my hope is that it sustains and that we're go moving beyond an ADD moment in our history. And you know, saying Black Lives Matter is one thing, but persisting in changing both ourselves and the systems in which we operate is a longer term whole other thing. Mm -hmm. So, and so th to say more about this relationship, I think between creative anger and love, love is far more than sentiment and nostalgia. It is creative and it's demanding. James Baldwin wrote, love is a battle, love is a war, love is a growing up. And another one of my favorite authors pictured here Jonathan Fuller wrote, only one thing can keep something close over time, holding it there, grappling with it, wrestling to the ground as Jacob did with the angel and refusing to let it go. What we don't wrestle, we let go of. Love isn't the absence of struggle, love is struggle. You can only keep close what you refuse to let go of. I love that quote. So, I think we kind of need to wrestle with both our love and our anger in order to, not into submission, but into activation and transformation. And I think struggle is, is inherent in both of these. You know, again, love isn't, we think so often of love as being so sentimental. Um, I love you, you love me, you know, but, but it, I, I think that fierce quality of love is what I'm really feeling when I talk about the connection between anger and love. And to me, it's an invitation to participate in a love of self that is so deep that we can imagine, as the greatest commandment says, loving another as we love ourselves. So it's refusing to give in to the hate of a race, of a people, of a gender, of a religion, because the second we begin to hate something not like us, we do damage not only to the soul of the one that we hate, but to our own soul. And when Baldwin says that he could never bring himself, for example, to hate white Americans because he realized he was doing damage to his own soul, he's not saying it's easy. He's not saying that it's even always rewarding. Neither does Jesus and nor does Buddha. It's not like they're just like, oh, guys, let's just all have a big hug and we'll be okay. <laughs> they're, they're actually making demands of what love looks like, which we'll get into on the Eightfold Path. Um, but when anger is fueled by a love of liberation and a fierce commitment to justice, it becomes creative and active. So for example, if I didn't deeply love my sons, my biracial sons and my black husband and friends and colleagues, I would not be angry about the unjust treatment at the hands of laws and systems. And that to me is a relationship, but similarly, if I didn't love my white ancestors, friends, and peers, I would not be hopeful for this wildfire kind of transformation. So James Baldwin wrote in The Fire Next Time, you must accept the innocence and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are in effect still trapped in a history with which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. I don't read this as softness. I don't even read it as letting someone off the hook. I read it as a fierce kind of love that is enough to include personal accountability and also justice. And I wanna talk for a minute with you about this idea of holy anger. I brought it up a couple weeks ago after I had 
attended a Project Curate webinar, and I can't remember her name, but one of the women speakers talked about holy anger. And I read this on a blog the other day. Holy anger is righteous, not self-righteous. It is prophetic, not oppressive. It is vocational, not vindictive. A call to each of us to wake up and act against evil. And racism is, in all of its insidious forms, evil. You know, we'll say before we're done, and if not, we'll do it um, in the next couple of weeks. There's a huge difference between anger and aggression. Right. Um, I th one of the best examples of this is that you can have uh, anger at the uh, terrifying driving of another person. Right. But if you allow that anger to shift into the aggression of road rage, that can lead to some really bad outcomes. Right, right. We can have anger at the people we love the most. You know, anger and love are on the same spectrum. They're both fueled by passion. But how we act in that anger says everything about how how well we're able to love both ourselves and the other. You, you know, I, I, Sherry, when we would do um, our relationship seminar, uh, would quote a psychiatrist who we both trained with um, as saying that you you need to have relationships with your intimate partners. Uh, that are secure enough, firm enough, loving enough, where you are free to hate. Right. Where, where our anger is safe, in other words. Where the anger yeah. is absolutely safe. Right. That it's contained in a crucible, uh, you know what a crucible is, mm -hmm. where you can have these intense reactions and they don't get out of control. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, we'll talk a minute later about what Thich Nhat Hanh suggests about how to deal with that kind of anger but um, there is a sense in which um, if we don't take some angry stances against injustice, evil, and oppression, as we like to say in the liturgy, uh, we've missed it. We've missed the calling. Right. We're not standing up for the, the, the weak and the oppressed. Um, I think one of the most striking summaries of the teaching of Jesus is, as you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And um, we have to take that seriously. Right. I love this story, um, and I won't read the whole thing, but just give an overview of what Joanna Macy tells the story of what it means to be a Shambhala warrior. Joanna Macy is um, a Buddhist and an activist, and she lifts up this kind of battle cry in this moment for us to become Shambhala warriors. Shambhala is not a place. It's, um, well, it's, it's kind of a mythical kingdom, but it's, it's embodied by spirit, not necessarily um, buildings and things. So it exists in our hearts and minds. So Shambhala is a state of being. And you can't recognize a Shambhala warrior by sight for there's no uniform or insignia. There are no banners. You can go to the next slide if you want. And there's no barricades from which to threaten the enemy. The Shambhala warriors have no land of their own. Always they move on the terrain of the barbarians themselves. So among those that they are trying to love into submission. So right now, she says, is the time when the earth is upended and needs Shambhala warriors. And she, she says, what are the weapons of the Shambhala warriors and how do they train? They train in the use of two weapons. The weapons are compassion and insight. Both are necessary. We need the first one because it provides us the fuel. It moves us out to act on behalf of other beings. But by itself, it can burn us out. So we need the second one as well which is insight into the dependent co-arising of all things, which is also said as inner being. It lets us see that the battle is not between good people and bad people, for the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. We realize that we are interconnected, as in a web, and that each act with pure motivation affects the entire web, bringing consequence we cannot measure or even see. But insight alone cannot cannot keep us going either. 
It can seem to keep us too cool. So we need the well, we need as well the heat of compassion, our openness or willingness to hold the world's pain. Both of these tools are necessary to become the Shambhala warrior. I love that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. So I'm, I really, this is, I think, the, the wisdom that Buddhism can offer anyone, mm -hmm. is that there is a way to be a so-called Shambhala or spiritual warrior in this life mm -hmm. without ever having to kill someone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this. Yeah, do we have time? Yeah. Okay. Um, there's sh this woman, I read her book about a year ago, uh, Zenju Earthland Manuel. She's a Buddhist priest, one of the few African-American Buddhist priests in America. And she has a whole, a lot of content committed to what she did or does with anger. She never says it goes away. She never says it dies down. She never says, I work through it. But she says, I work with it. I work with it to let it guide me as an agent of love, as an agent of compassion. So these are the questions that, that she asks of anger. So what's going to happen now, she says. I don't advocate that as activists, whatever the activism is, um, that it could be in any realm, that when anger comes up, that we shouldn't feel anger. She disagrees with that. She says, I think you are angry, and then you ask, now what? How are you going to use it? How are we going to use it to create something new? And how are we going to hold hands in it to do the work and sort of create the fire next time so that the whole world doesn't become ablaze with anger? We must reach into it and learn to hold it. So um, before we go, if we have time, I, I'd like to share what Thich Nhat Hanh Love says it. about a methodology yeah. for dealing with anger. Um, I, I have benefited from this man's work so much over the years. And he has a book on anger. It's not a light tome. Mm -mm. It's about this thick. And um, I, I highly recommend it, almost anything by him. Some of his works you can read through in an hour or two, mm -hmm. but this book would take a little bit longer. But anger's, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says that you have to approach anger mindfully. And um, this is what a meditation practice brings to people. And we talked on the podcast about the difference between a meditation practice and a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. They're different. Right. Uh, meditation practice is about bringing mindfulness to what we do. Mm -hmm. um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you drink a glass of water and you're mindful that you are drinking water, that's mindfulness of water. Right. And so often in our culture, we are shoveling food in mm -hmm. uh, without mi mindfulness at all about what we're doing about eating or anything. So Thich Nhat Hanh says that, it, it, first of all, it's best when you're anger, angry, and if you can't do this sitting, you go walking to do it, but you bring mindfulness to your anger. And, and he says, you know, breathing in, I am aware that I'm angry, and breathing out, I'm mindful of the anger. And he said, you don't get angry at anger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when your stomach hurts, you don't get angry at your stomach. You pay attention to what the origin of that hurt is and try to address it. And the metaphor that he uses is that of a mother uh, uh, dealing with an upset, angry, melted down infant. <laughs> I've never if, had that. Uh, if that's the right <laughs> phrase. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, he said, first thing that you do when you sit down with anger is you smile, like you're doing. <laughs> because it. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that I was first attracted to, to Buddhist teachers is they seem to be so happy all the time, and I like that. We'll deal with the moral obligation to be happy right. <laughs> along, along the way in the, the Eightfold Path. And he said that the mother will take the infant up and hold it, and she's not angry with the infant. She doesn't punish the infant. She doesn't try to get rid of the good mother. Doesn't try to get rid of the um, anger. I don't think most parents know what it's like to be tempted to throw their children out a window mm -hmm. from time to time. Mm -hmm. But um, the mother will look to see what the source of the upset for the child is 
and deal directly with that. Mm -hmm. And if it's hunger or if the baby needs changing or the baby's hurting in some way, the baby's sick, the mother will address that. And the mother will just simply be with the infant and allow it to um, have its meltdown and to get over it but not act out on it, not act reactively to it. And he says it's like in, if you're in a cold room and you light a fire. It takes several minutes to heat the room up. Yeah. So this practice is not something that happens like that. And we live in a culture of intense impatience. So we won't think it'll happen right now. Mm -hmm. But um, I've definitely been the mother who has had to take care of my own frustration, powerlessness first, and then take care of the child's. And I think that tender dance is, is ever present. We give in to the anger towards the child. We project it when we can't handle it in ourselves. You know, I love your talking about alchemy. A lot of people may not be aware, but that was one of the things that consumed Carl Jung. He was really interested in yeah, alchemy yeah, and yeah. how that worked. And, and what alchemy is, what we're talking about, about using anger as a spiritual tool, is how you use the energy of anger to transform it into something else. Right. Transform it into social action, transform it into compassion, transform it somehow into connection with another human being. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that's how to use anger as a spiritual tool. Okay, that's fun. ready, done? <laughs> oh, that was fun. Yeah. I like to do that. Yeah. Remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you go this week, watch your step because you carry precious cargo. See you here next Sunday.